0: You guys grab a seat. Welcome to FCA. My name is Adam Torno. I came in from Dallas, Texas today to spend time with you guys, and I am really excited to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes. Um, and I, I, I do I want to thank the leaders. This is a lot of fun. And on behalf of the parents or really anybody over the age of 30, I want to thank the leadership for moving the start time to eight o'clock tonight. I Literally, Paige emailed me and told me a couple days ago, this was 8 o'clock, and I like was excited to tell my wife, going, I've got great news. I'm going to get to bed an hour earlier tonight, and uh, and she called me old, and it was okay. So anyway, we are, uh, we are excited to be here. So for you parents that are here, uh, I graduated from Clemson in 1997. I became a follower of Jesus like right over there in Donaldson Hall. I was a Sigma Chi here. I don't even think Sigma Chi is here anymore. I was a Sigma Chi here, did not join that fraternity. Uh, To meet God, but God had other plans. And there was a 20 year old friend of mine uh, that was in the fraternity at the time that shared the gospel with me. And after watching his life for a couple of years, and honestly, being around this community, uh, so even though I was not directly a part of FCA when I was here as a student, uh, the reputation of this ministry on this campus is massive. And where I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, and I showed up on this campus. This was the very first time I had seen uh, peers follow Jesus, and uh, and I never recovered from it. I never recovered from it. So I showed up here in 1993, uh, lost as, as you could be, and I left here by the grace of God as a follower of Jesus Christ, and it was because of ministries like this and just faithful followers on this campus. And so it is always fun to be able to come back and open God's word and to teach it, and so Uh, Tonight, where we're going to go, I will just start with a little story. So as I told you, I became a Christian here and uh, moved to Atlanta right after I graduated and had been in Atlanta for a couple of years, got plugged into a church there. And as I was a part of that church, I started doing this small group thing, this community thing, and had a bunch of guys that were around me that had been following Jesus longer uh, than I had because I had just been walking with the Lord for a couple of years. And so one day, one of my friends came up to me and said, Adam, we're going to do this thing. And I, I want to know if you're into this, if you would like to, to do this with us. We are going to memorize Colossians chapter 3, the entire chapter. And as like somebody who had only been following Jesus for two years, I heard that somebody, a group of, of uh, friends, was going to memorize an entire chapter of Scripture. My mind was blown because two years in following Jesus, I was not memorizing any Scripture. I don't know if I had anything. Maybe, maybe I had John 3.16 memorized because I watched the NFL a little bit growing up, and I'd seen those signs and had kind of like, what is that? What are those numbers? And figured out what all that was. And so they were like, are you in? Are you going to do this? And I said, yes, let's go. I'll, I'll do that. I, I don't even know if anybody in the history of Christendom has ever done this. I bet if we pull this off, Billy Graham will call us. This is going to be amazing. So let's go. And I had no plan. I just kind of opened up Colossians chapter 3. And one morning, and just spending time with the Lord before I went to work, and I just started reading it. And that's what I did every time I was spending time with God, as I was just in Colossians chapter 3. And just starting with, since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, or Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, and not on earthly things. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. And I just kept just reading that chapter over and over again. And so after a couple of days, uh, fast forward, I'm, I'm at work and I'm going to go get lunch, and I'm waiting in line to get lunch. That was the lunch rush, and there was a long line. And so I'm bored sitting there in line just going, what am I going to do to pass the time? And I just, just started to go, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to just go over my verses while I'm sitting here to, to wait to get lunch. And so since then I've been raised with Christ, set my heart on things above and not on earthly things, set my, uh, set my mind on things above and not on earthly things. And I just kept going over and over, and, like, the line went by like that. And right there, I just said, that's my strategy. That is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to, like, put time on my calendar to memorize Colossians chapter 3. I'm just going to utilize all the mundane moments that are in my normal day, and I'm just going to go over the verses. And so now, when I'm in the car driving to work, and I'm at a stoplight, and I'm bored at a stoplight, I'll just go over my verses. Now, when I'm in the elevator, and I'm bored in the elevator, and I don't want to talk to the people in the elevator, I'll just go over my verses. Now, when I'm waiting in line at the grocery store, I'll just go over my verses. Now when I park my car and I walk into the office, I'm going to just go over my verses. Now if for some reason I get bored in church, I'll just go over my verses, right? That's what I'll do. And so there we go, 30 days goes by, and I was able to memorize Colossians chapter 3, and Billy Graham didn't care. Like he never called. He never called. So fast forward to this last summer, this last summer, so almost 20 years later. I decided this last summer what I was going to do is I wanted to memorize John chapter 15. John chapter 15 is one of those passages that I feel like I keep going back to in my life over and over and over again. There is such depth and richness in Jesus's words there about how he is the vine and we are the branches and how apart from him we can do nothing. And so I just decided that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to memorize John chapter 15. And I started like about the beginning of June when my boys got out of school and my goal was to be done by Labor Day weekend. And so the whole summer, every time I woke up and spent time with the Lord, I was going over the verses, going over the verses. And then Labor Day weekend hit and I just had to look myself in the mirror and just go, I have failed. I failed. I did not do it. And as I was sitting there and I was just like, what what changed? You know, I'm I'm 20 years now of following Jesus. I would think that maybe this would be a little bit easier and I would maybe be a little bit more disciplined. Why is it that I found it so difficult to memorize John chapter 15 and it was so easy to memorize Colossians chapter 3? And as I thought about it, I think I came up with one of the reasons why I struggled this last summer to memorize John chapter 15. And I think what I'm going to blame is I'm going to blame this. I'm gonna blame my iPhone. Because my life is almost the exact same as it was as far as mundane moments in my life. So when I was uh, memorizing Colossians chapter 3, I had all kinds of mundane moments in my life, but I didn't have this during those mundane moments. And so now when I go through mundane moments, now when I'm driving in the car and I get to a stoplight and I'm bored, Now what do I do? I don't go over verses anymore. Now what I do is I pull out my phone and I see, did anybody text me in the last five seconds? And now when I park my car and I'm walking into the office, I'm not sitting there going over my verses. Now I'm opening up my phone and I'm seeing, did anybody email me in the last five minutes? And now when I'm waiting in line at the grocery store, I'm pulling out my phone and I'm just looking for some little bits of trivia or data, just something to fill in the mundane moments. I, I jokingly call my phone. This is my, uh, my boredom pre- prevention device. I, I actually, I think I remember the last day I was bored. And the last day I was bored was 10 years ago, the day before I got my first iPhone. I think ever since then, when I have all these little mundane moments in my life right now, what I am doing is I am pulling this thing out and I'm getting lost in the scroll and getting lost in the screen. And I think that's the difference. That's why John chapter 15 didn't get lodged in my heart and my mind this summer because I wasn't just dwelling on it all the time. I was trying to think about it just for a few minutes in the morning. In Colossians chapter 3, I was just dwelling on it all day and as I was connecting these dots this past fall, it reminded me of a quote from John Piper as an author and pastor and uh, somebody that many of you guys probably know. And he had this quote that came out a few years ago, and this is what he said, and it just hit me right, right between the eyes. This is one of those quotes that you hear and you, uh, you never forget because you're just so mad at it. He says this. He says, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. That's one of those quotes when you read it and you're like John Piper Schmiper, like who is that guy anyway? You know, like I bet he doesn't even have Twitter and fa- like who's even on Twitter anymore, right? You know, like you just want to look at that and just and you just want to pick on it, but then you just think about it for a little bit and you go, yeah, he is so right. It's exactly right. And What he's basically saying here is that listen, you and I, if we are not careful. We can get lost. We can get lost in mundane things, and what will end up happening is that you and I, we can waste our lives, and we'll kind of waste it by accident. And so I start with all that because that's what I want us to talk about tonight. I want us to to talk about, as we open up God's Word, what are some ways that you and I can avoid wasting our life? And I just want to be really clear. This is not going to be an all screens are evil kind of message and just get rid of your iPhones and take social media off off, of your, uh, off your phones, that, that is not going to be the point of this message because the problem is not the screens. The problem is not the apps. The problem is our hearts. Our hearts are constantly looking for life somewhere. And if we're not careful because our hearts are always looking for something to entertain it, always looking for something to amuse us, if we are not careful, we're going to wake up one day and we're going to go, where did the time go? Where did it go? So tonight as we open up God's Word, we're going to look at some ways that you and I can avoid wasting our life. And I think this is an incredibly important message for every single one of us in here. And the reason why is because even though I don't know all of you and I haven't had a conversation with all of you, I'm willing to bet that there is not one person in this room tonight that wants to get to the end of their life and have any regret. I'm willing to bet that not one of you in here wants to get to the end of your life and just go, you know what? I look back on my life now and I just kind of wasted it, but oh well. Nobody wants to waste their life. Nobody wants to get to the end of their life and have any regret. And humans have always been at risk of wasting their life. In fact, we're going to look at some writings tonight to a church 2,000 years ago that was at a risk of wasting their life. The risk of wasting your life is not new to us here in 2020. But what I I do think is interesting for us here in 2020 is this, is that we now have more options than maybe any other culture ever. We have more options now to waste our life. And most of the opportunities that you and I have to waste our life right now, so many of them are sneaky and they're subtle. And by and large, they're socially acceptable. And so what we're going to do is we're going to open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you turn there, 1 Peter chapter 4. I love this phrase that we say sometimes at Watermark, that man doesn't need to be taught as much as he needs to be reminded. Right? And I think that's so true. And so tonight, maybe I'm not going to teach you anything new, but I think sometimes what we need is that we need a wake-up call. And I think 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11 are going to hopefully be a wake-up call for us. So as you're turning there to 1 Peter chapter 4, let me just set up some of the context. So Peter was one of Jesus' disciples, one of the guys that walked around with Jesus as you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then when Jesus was uh, died and buried and rose again and the church started, uh, Peter was one of the early church leaders. He was one of the early apostles. And so Peter... Uh, as one of the early church leaders, started to hear about some of these other churches that were being planted, and he heard about some things that were going on, and there were these other churches that were planted in what is now today modern-day Turkey. And he heard about some things that were going on in these churches. He heard about some persecution that was happening to these churches. So in this culture at that time, when the church was starting, it was not cool to be a follower of Jesus. It was not socially acceptable. You wouldn't do things like this on state government property where you can get together and open up God's word and proclaim who Jesus is. And so in this time, there was some persecution. It was not cool to be Jesus or to be Jesus's followers. And so what was happening is people were being killed for their faith. And so Peter wanted to encourage these churches because he knew they were at an inflection point. He knew that they had a choice to make. He knew that they were at risk of wasting their life and turning their back on the faith. And so he wrote them this letter. And so we're going to look here. And this part in 1 Peter chapter four, verses seven through eleven. I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we'll unpack, and I see I think there's at least three uh, three reminders for us in here, three practical things that you and I can think about to make sure that we're not wasting our lives. Here's what Peter says. The end of all things is there, is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. let me just unpack this a little bit. So let's just look here. Let's go back to the top and start in verse 7. I think this is our first reminder here. Peter says, The end of all things is near, so therefore be alert and of sober mind, so that you may pray. Now, whenever you read somebody that says, or somebody, if you ever meet somebody that says, hey, I think the end of all things is is near, I don't know what goes through your mind. I don't know if you think, okay, this is about to be crazy what the person is going to say. You think about the guy walking around in the sandwich board over on campus somewhere, ringing a bell, saying the end of all things is near. I don't know if you're going to trust what this person's going to say. I don't know if it's going to be crazy or profound. All kinds of things pop in our mind when we hear this. And what we need to understand, Peter wasn't trying to be dramatic. Peter was talking about two things here that are still uh, one that, that by the grace of God isn't in play for us right now, but one that very much is in play. And so Peter had one eye on the present situation in the churches that he was writing to when he said the end of all things is near. That was quite a literal statement to those churches that were being persecuted. Some of the people reading that or hearing that letter, that might have been reality for them because of the persecution that was happening, they may be the next person that was going to die for their faith. And so for some that were hearing this, that might have been literal. Maybe for them, the end of all things was near. So he had one eye on the present situation of these churches, but he also had another eye on eternity. And what Peter knows is this. Peter knows that in light of eternity, it doesn't matter how old you are. The end is near for all of us. And that is still very much true for us today. So regardless of what your age is in here tonight, in light of eternity, the end is near for all of us. And so because the end is near for all of us, he tells us that now is the time to do something. Now is the time to be alert and to be of sober mind so that you may pray. I don't know if you guys ever played that game with your friends in high school or had that conversation late at night with your friends in high school. I know my buddies and I, sometimes we would sit around late at night and we would just say, okay, like, here's the hypothetical. If you heard tonight that tomorrow the world was going to end, what would you do tonight? Did you guys ever ever have those conversations? No? Just me and my friends, we're the only ones? Okay, that's fine. So we would have these conversations, kind of a fun conversation. So I remember my answer, 16-year-old Adam always had the same answer. And 16-year-old Adam was like, I know exactly what I would do if I knew that the world was going to end tomorrow. I would go get all the alcohol I could possibly find, and I would drink it all. And I would go and try to find all the drugs that I've been resisting and not doing Mind you, I knew no drug dealers at the time, but I just thought now that the, the world was going to end, they'd be popping up everywhere. And so I was like, I'd go find that, I would do the drugs, I would steal a fast car, I would drive without my seatbelt, and I would totally go to bed without brushing my teeth. <laughs> like, that, that's what I would do. And so 16-year-old Adam would say, all right, if the end of all things is near, now is the time for pleasure and revelry. That was basically my answer. And Peter's going, no, listen, the end of all things is near. Now is not the time for pleasure and revelry. You know what now is the time for? Now is the time to be alert and to be of sober mind. Some of your translations may say to be self-controlled. If the end of all things is near, now is not the time to just go do whatever you want. Now is the time to be alert and of sober mind. Why? So that you can pray, so that you can pursue the Lord, because the end of all things is near. And so I think right here in verse 7, we've got our first way that you and I can avoid wasting our life, and it's this, is to be self-controlled, to be self-controlled. And I think the reason that, that Peter is saying this is because of this, is because if we're not self-controlled, then we're just gonna be giving in to every whim and desire that we have. And if you and I, if we're giving in to every whim and desire that we have, most of those desires are probably gonna be sinful. And so we're just gonna go around and we're gonna do more sinning if we just do whatever it is that we wanna do. And what Peter knows is this, is that sin is a waste of time. Sin is a complete and total waste of time. I don't know why, but for some reason over the past few years, that thought has been so profound to me. I have not connected the dots yet in my life like I have over the last couple years to see how often when I give in to my desires, how much time I waste cleaning things up. Let me just give you an example of something that happened uh, just the fall of last year, and it, it, uh, it involved a rubber duck uh, just like this. Now, the circumstances that would lead to why I have a rubber duck, would ju- are, it really it is so crazy and so preposterous that I can't even really get into all the details, but I'm just going to share some bullet points with you and just trust that you guys will be able to follow along. So I'm on staff at Watermark Community Church, and at one of our staff meetings, we meet every Tuesday, at one of our staff meetings, everybody on staff was given a rubber duck like this. And we were given instructions with this rubber duck and said in two weeks when we have another staff meeting out in Fort Worth, everybody needs to have their rubber duck at this Fort Worth meeting. If you don't have the rubber duck at the Fort Worth meeting, there will be a consequence, okay? Now when you hear consequence, the consequence is not like you have to work an overtime shift and not get paid or uh, you have to do 50 push-ups. No, a consequence for us on staff at Watermark is, it takes far more time and it's far more humiliating. A consequence for us would be like, oh, I don't know, if you don't bring your duck, you've got to dress up like a duck, and then you've got to go to various ponds around Dallas and Fort Worth and take selfies and post it on your Instagram feed, okay? Stuff like that. Or you've got to take Taylor Swift's new song and rewrite the lyrics to be about how much you love your rubber duck, okay? So I know about these consequences, and I, I want to avoid them at all costs because I'm a 44-year-old man with a mortgage and a full-time job. I don't have time for consequences, okay? I don't, I don't want to do that kind of stuff. And so I got my duck, and I buried it in the bottom of my backpack, and I did not let it see any light of day because I was not going to lose this duck. So now I go two weeks later. It's the morning of the meeting. I bring the duck out of my backpack. And I'm about ready to leave to go to Fort Worth. I know it's raining that day, so I'm going to leave a little bit early. I take the duck out, and I put it on the mantle in my living room, and I put my keys next to it because I'm going to make sure I'm not going to forget that duck. I go back to brush my teeth back in my bedroom. I pass my kids. My kids are like, bye, Dad. We love you. It was raining, so my wife was driving my boys to school that day. I finish brushing my teeth. I come out the hallway. I turn the corner. I look at the mantle, and the duck is gone. And I start to panic, okay? I'm looking around, and I'm like, it was just right there. I know, I know it was just right there. Where is this duck? And I'm looking around, and the only people who had been near that duck when I was back there brushing my teeth were those little ones that I live with, okay? My, my kids. And so I picked up the phone in a panic, and I made what I think will go down in Adam Tarno history as the most ridiculous phone call I've ever made in my life, Okay? And so I picked up the phone, and I dialed my wife, and she just answered it like she always does because she's sweet. She's like, hey, babe, what's up? And I, I said something like this. Where's the rubber duck? Do you guys have the rubber duck? I need that rubber duck right now because if I don't have that rubber duck, then there's going to be a consequence, and I've got to have it, and I'm leaving it in like 10 minutes because I don't know if you know, but it's raining outside, and I need that rubber duck right now. Do you have it? And she's like, she looks in the back seat. She said, she goes, yeah, Josh has it. I go, I need it. She goes, okay, um, we'll turn around. And we'll come back and bring it to you. So now the focus in the Tarno household was now no longer, let's get the kids to school on time. <laughs> the focus in the Tarno household right now was, let's get dad the duck, okay? So I'm like sitting there at the door. I see them drive up, and I march out right there, and I'm just I'm mad, right? I'm just mad. And I, they roll down the, door, the, the window, and my son, Josh, like, here, dad, throws it to me, and I just stare at him. My wife's like, I'm so sorry, and I just stare at her, <laughs> and I just turn my back on him, and I go inside, and I go out to Fort Worth, and I, I don't have to pay a consequence, okay, but I'm thinking about it all day, because I know that it's not over, and so then I get home and my, see my wife, and she's being kind. She's like, so how was Fort Worth, and I was like, yeah, Fort Worth was fine. Um, listen, about that phone call, and she goes, yeah said listen i uh, i was i was a little stressed and i was not kind and i was not gentle and i took it out on you will you forgive me and she said yes i, I will forgive you i get it and we talked through that i looked at my phone and it was a 21 second phone call okay so right there just to clean up that 21 second phone call it took about 5 minutes then we sit down at dinner that night all right, well, now I need to disciple my kids. And I'm like, all right, boys. Uh, Dad, you, you know my tone this morning. I lost my cool. I wasn't kind. I wasn't gentle with you guys. Will you forgive me for that? Yeah, we'll, we'll forgive you, Dad. And they were great. And said, all right, look, can we talk about something? What on earth would ever make you think you could take a duck with your dad's name on it? Right, like, like, help me understand why you thought that that was okay for you to do that? Because there, I, I have some gaps missing in this story, and I need you to fill them in right now. And so we had a conversation about that, and I'm not kidding you guys. The whole thing probably took 15 to 20 minutes to clean up. All right, 21 second phone call. 15 minutes of cleanup, and that's just one story. I mean, I could keep going. You've got your stories. I've got my stories. You know what? That moment of giving in to my desire, of me uh, lashing out in anger and frustration for 21 seconds cost me 15 to 20 minutes. Sin is a waste of time. And I think we, we, we've met people like this. We've met people who have been addicted to a substance right you've never you've never had a conversation with somebody that was addicted to alcohol for 10 years or addicted to heroin for years and they finally by the grace of God get sobered up and you never talk to them about that and they go you know what for for 10 years I was I was almost homeless and I was stealing and I had no relationships with anybody and I was addicted to the substance and and here I am now I'm finally sober and I look back on that 10 years and I just think man that was a great learning experience I learned a lot about myself During that time, you know, and I'm kind of glad that I went through that. No, they never say that. They never say that. They say the exact same thing. I lost that 10 years. It was a waste. It was gone. I think we're looking here at what Peter says, that the end of all things is near, therefore be alert and sober-minded. And we're seeing that sin is a waste of time. And I just think every single one of us in here knows this tonight. You know that that five seconds of anger leads to, to hours of cleanup for you. You know that those moments where you just could not resist those urges has left to, left, led to just months or, or even years of guilt and shame. You know those moments when you just told one little lie, and now you're, you, you just have to keep lying, and you've got to keep figuring out where are things, and you're just playing the shell game, and it's exhausting you right now. Every single one of us knows what Peter is saying here. At the end of all things is near. To be alert and be sober-minded, now's the time to be self-controlled because sin is a waste of time. If by the Spirit of God we're not self-controlled, we're just gonna waste it. So that's our first point. And look here in verse eight, he goes on, he says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Let me just be really clear here what Peter's not saying. He's not saying that if you love other people well, that that will atone for your sins. There was one act of love that atones for your sins, and it's not one of your acts of love. It's the act of love that we've been singing about. The act of love of Jesus hanging on the cross. That act of love is what atones for your sins. Amen? And so what Peter is saying here is that love covers over a multitude of sins in the sense of this way, is that your acts of love can be more remembered than your sins. They can be louder than your sins, but they do not atone for your sin. Only Jesus' act of love atones for your sin. So because the end of all things is near and we need to be alert and sober-minded, now now what he wants us to do is love each other deeply, and then he he just offers this really simple way that you can love each other deeply is just offer hospitality to one another, serve one another, and do that without grumbling. So the second way that you and I can avoid wasting our life is this. The first one was to be self-controlled and the second one is to be selfless. It's to be selfless. And I'm telling you guys, I cannot read this enough and the reason I cannot read this enough and why I need to be reminded of this over and over and over again is because I know that in my heart I've got a deep-seated problem and that problem is this, is that I love me some me. I buy the lie that nobody else is thinking about me, and so I've got to think about me. Like here, I know this, like if you, could, if you could take a word cloud of my thoughts for a day, you guys know what a word cloud is? You take a block of text and you run it through this, this algorithm type thing, and it, and it puts out this infographic, and, and I, I think I've got an example here. Of, uh, I took this, the text from the Sermon on the Mount and ran it through a word cloud, and the words that are in there bigger are the words that are repeated on a regular basis. And it, and it picks out some of the themes, just kind of a cool visual way to show some themes in a block of text. And I bet if you could take my thoughts, like if Google came up with some sort of like AI thing where Alexa figured out how to take my thoughts for one day. I know Google, that, was, that was Amazon and Google. I totally messed that up, and I am so sorry. But you guys get what I mean here. So all the if they figured that out in some way, and if you could take a word cloud of my thoughts, I think you'd see some words on there that you would expect to see. You'd hopefully see Jesus and God and maybe where I work, Watermark, and you'd see Jackie and Joshua and Jake, and there'd be words you'd talk, like, you know, Nutella would be on there, of course. I mean, that's just normal, right? We we would expect to see that stuff. But I think to my great shame, the biggest words in my word cloud of my thoughts on a given day would be I and me. Because I'm buying the lie that selfishness is going to pay off. And what Peter's reminding us of here is this, is that selfishness, it always over-promises and under-delivers. It always takes more than it gives. You know what it's like? It's like at the arcade, those coin pusher games. You know those coin pusher games, that shelf that moves? And all those quarters are like right there on the edge, and you just keep pumping quarters into that machine because you think one of them is going to knock off all of those quarters, and you're going to have like, Chick-fil-A for a week, and it's going to be awesome, right? And You're going to walk around with all those quarters in your pocket, and you just keep thinking the next one's going to pay off, the next one's going to pay off, and those machines always take more than they give, and that's what selfishness does. It overpromises, and it underdelivers. And again, I, th- I think we get this. I think we know this intuitively. I think every single one of us has been through one of those weeks, and maybe you've had that week this week, Or maybe it's going to be next week or it was the last week or something like that where you've had one of those weeks where you've had so much going on and it has been up late and up and then you're up early and it just feels like stress. And so what you start to do is you start to dream about when is this week going to be over and what am I going to do? And I just cannot wait to get to that weekend where it's just gonna be like a Netflix bender all weekend. I'm not gonna talk to anybody. I'm just gonna stay in my dorm room or stay in my apartment. And it is just from Friday night until Monday morning, it is all Netflix. And you're gonna get caught up on The Office again and watch The Stranger Things all over again. And you're gonna watch Suits and then guys, because your roommate's not there, you're gonna be like, I wanna see what Gilmore Girls is really all about, you know? (laughs) And you're gonna, and you're not gonna tell anybody, and you should and you're just you're going to it's just a Netflix bender all weekend and we've done this we've done this and how do we feel on monday when we're done with that we feel terrible on wednesday during the busy week it's all we can dream of is the weekend where it's just about me and when you do that when you do that it never it never pays because selfishness is it's a game that takes more than it gives and then here's what's crazy Here's what's crazy is that some of you are gonna spend your spring break not just being about yourself. I get so encouraged by the, the college students that I see in Dallas and what the some of them will do for their spring break. And, and I know it's what a lot of you in this room are gonna do for your spring break, and you're gonna hop on an airplane, and, and some of these students in Dallas will fly to, they're gonna fly to Mi- Miami, and then they're gonna get on another plane, and they're gonna fly over to Port au Prince Haiti, and then they're gonna get out of the airport. And uh, then they're going to get on to a school bus that has no air conditioning. And they're going to drive 90 minutes on these unpaved roads in the sweltering heat. And they're going to show up at Mission of Hope. And they're going to sleep under a, a mosquito net. And they're going to take malaria medication and have crazy dreams for a week. And they're going to sleep on a mattress that looks like it was taken from a baby's crib. And it's going to be 30 people in a room together. They're going to shower for like two minutes in cold water. They're going to eat nothing but white carbs and peanut butter and they're going to plant some plants and trees and they're going to paint houses and they're going to play with kids and they're going to sweat for a week and they're not going to sleep and they're going to get back on that airplane and they're going to show back up in Dallas and they're going to be like, I feel alive. I feel alive. It's, it's like the system is rigged against us. We think selfishness is what's going to make us alive, and it's never. It, it, it makes us smaller. And Jesus was so clear in Matthew chapter 16 that this is kind of the way that God designed it. Matthew 16, verse 24 through 26, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good would it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And the answer is nothing. So you and I, if we want to make sure that we're not going to waste our life, then we're going to be alert and sober-minded. We're going to pray that God will help us to be self-controlled. And we're going to pray that God will help us to live selflessly. And let's look how he wraps this up in verse 10. And each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. then he gives some examples here. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So Peter's reminding these churches, and he's reminding us tonight, that every single follower of Jesus has been given a gift. You have your time and your talent and your treasure And he has given you this gift. And he has given you this gift, not for you. And this gift is not for you to collect and to keep on the shelf in the room of your life or to hang on the wall and just be like, I'm just going to hoard these gifts right now. God has given every single one of us a gift. And you know what what Peter is reminding us of here? What God wants you and I to do is this. He wants us to be re-gifters. That's what he wants us to do. And I don't know socially how you think about Regifting, I don't know what your parents taught you about. Regifting, your mom might be nudging you right now, going, We are never going to be regifters in this family. And so, in our economy right now, regifting maybe is frowned upon sometimes, where somebody gives you a gift, you don't like it, and so you turn around and give it to somebody else. I was confronted with regifting three days before my wedding. My wife and I, we got married on December 28th, 2003. And so, December 25th, Christmas morning, that year, we were so busy with planning the wedding that we just didn't even think about Christmas. We really weren't even excited about Christmas. We were excited for the 28th to get married. And so Christmas morning shows up. I drive over to, uh, to her apartment, and we're going to go spend Christmas morning with her family. And I show up to pick her up, and she opens the door to the apartment. And is like, I- I'm almost ready. Come on in. Just wait for a second. And so I come in. I shut the door, and she disappears into a closet. And she's like rummaging around in there, and she walks out with what I remember are two frames with her pictures in them. And she starts to take her pictures out, and she starts to put these frames in gift bags. And I'm like, what are we doing? And she's like, I totally forgot. We have to exchange gifts with my family this morning. And I'm like, oh, dear. We have got some communication issues because I think I could have solved that. But that's all right. We're getting married, so let's go. All right, let's go. So we go out there, and we go and with her family, and I'm just dreading when we're going to exchange these gifts. And we finally sit around and do it, and people in our family open up these frames, and they're like, oh, thank you. And I'm just sitting there to myself going, she sits on a throne of lies. <laughs> now, in her defense, uh, in the 16-plus years that I've been married to her, she's never done that ever since then. It really was just that unique season where, where we were just busy. So she regifted that one time. But it, it kind of makes you feel weird with regifting because that's the way our economy works. And what God is saying through Peter, what he's reminding us of here is this, is that you absolutely are expected in God's economy to be a re-gifter. Your time and your talent and your treasure, they are not for you. They're to be shared with other people, to be shared generously with other people. And so this is our third way that you and I can avoid wasting our life was to be to be uh, self-controlled, to be selfless, and to be a steward. To be a steward. A Steward is just a fancy word to manage somebody else's property according to the owner's vision and values. And so you are to be a steward. And, and this, this, starts, this starts now. Let me just talk to the students in here for a little bit. I, I know that one of the challenges of being in college right now is this, is that you just feel like at times you're an adult in waiting. Like you're in a season of just preparing and focusing on you and building skills and building a resume so that then when you leave this campus, you can go and kind of start to be an adult. And what I just want to remind you of right now is do not miss out on the joy of being a steward and using your gifts today. You are not a steward in waiting. These are things that you can do right now today. People on this campus need your gifts. They need you. They need you to engage with them. They need you to invite them places. They need you to serve them and to love them. They need you to share the gospel with them. God has a plan to use you on this campus right now, and you're missing out on a great joy if you don't seek to use those gifts today. So God, he wants us to be re-gifters, because if we're not re-gifters, that just means we're accumulating everything. And so I think if I could just use just a, a, a silly analogy or example with a picture here, and let's just put up this first picture of this room. Let's just imagine for a moment here that like our life with Jesus is supposed to look like a room, and it's supposed to then maybe look at something like this. And what I mean by this is not like the modern design or anything like that or the minimalist nature of it and the color scheme or anything like that. What I mean is this, is there's just enough there. There's just enough there. You've got a place to sit If people come over, you got a TV to watch for the game. There's just enough there. That is, hey, there's probably you've been given some. Yeah, you can keep some of it, but there's a lot that you would would give. You, You don't have too much. And I'm talking metaphorically here about our spiritual gifts, not about the material stuff right here. But I think what happens for so many of us is if we're not sharing our gifts, what we think our room looks like this, the room of our life looks like this, but it doesn't. In actuality, it looks like this. hoarding we're just hoarding everything so we need to be a steward be a steward so what peter's reminding us of here is that if we want to not waste our life be self-controlled be selfless and be a steward so as i just wrap up with this one last story and illustration as i think about this idea of not wasting your life over and over again and we've just been saying it so much tonight i Think about the guy who we quoted at the very beginning of this message. I think about John Piper. So John Piper wrote a book uh, that came out a few years ago called Don't Waste Your Life. And the idea for that book really was birthed in a sermon that was preached in May of 2000 called Boast Only in the Cross. In May of 2000, Louis Giglio and the Passion Movement, they had this, this thing called One Day. 2000 that was at Shelby Farms just outside of Memphis, Tennessee, and 40,000 young adults and college students gathered for three days to worship God through music and through the, the teaching of God's word. And one of the sessions was John Piper, 54 years old at the time, dressed in full-on dad gear. I mean, he had his pleated slacks on and his starched blue shirt, And his hair was everywhere, and he had his glasses on, and he stood behind a podium. And for 40 minutes, he pleaded with those students, do not waste your life. In 2000, at that time, the the generations that were there, it was the tail end of Generation X, and the very beginning of the millennial generation was right there. And they were listening to John Piper just plead over and over again, do not waste your life. In the last seven minutes of that message, he shared two stories that now over 20 years later, people looking back on that sermon and looking back at that last seven minutes have said that that is seven minutes that moved a generation, that that seven minutes and those two stories that he shared did more of the last 20 years to further the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ than any other sermon in the last 20 years. And so I thought it would be fun to do something. Do something a little different. I thought it'd be fun to watch the last seven minutes of that message. You guys seen the movie Inception? You know, a dream within a dream. About to have a sermon within a sermon. All right. You guys are gonna have trouble falling asleep tonight. I'm sorry. Just trying to figure all that out. Okay. this This video looks old. It's it's 20 years old. You're gonna see some puka shell necklaces. You're gonna see some visors on backwards you're going to see what college looked like when I was in it, right? These are my people, and I'm excited to show it to you. So let's watch this.
1: You don't have to know a lot of things in order to make a huge difference for the Lord in the world. But you do need to know a few things that are great and be willing to live for them and die for them. People that make a difference in the world are not people who have mastered a lot of things. They are people who have been mastered by a very few things that are very, very great. If you want your life to count, You don't have to have a high IQ and you don't have to have a high EQ. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to have good looks. You don't have to be from a good family or from a good school. You just have to know a few basic, simple, glorious, majestic, obvious unchanging, eternal things and be gripped by them and be willing to lay down your life for them, which is why anybody in this crowd can make a worldwide difference because it isn't you, it's what you're gripped with. But one of the really sad things about this moment right now is that there are hundreds of you in this crowd who do not want your life to make a difference. All you want is to be liked. Maybe finish school, get a good job, find a husband or a wife, A nice house, a nice car, long weekends, good vacations, grow old, healthy, have a fun retirement, die easy, no hell, and that's all you want. You don't give a rip whether your life counts on this earth for eternity. That's a tragedy in the making That is a tragedy in the making. About three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliason, over 80, single all her life, A nurse poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities, and then in retirement, partnering up with Ruby, also pushing 80 And going from village to village in Cameroon. And the brakes give way. Over a cliff they go. And they're dead instantly. And I asked my people, is this a tragedy? Two women in their 80s, almost, A a whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick in the hardest places. And 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, fly into eternity, with a death in a moment. Is this a tragedy, I asked? It is not a tragedy. I'll read you what a tragedy is. I've got a little article here from Reader's Digest. You don't read Reader's Digest, I know that. But there is a generation who does. This is a tragedy. Title of the article, Start Now, Retire Early, February 1998. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler play softball and collect shells. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. And there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you don't buy that dream. The American dream a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells as the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. Look, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a good swing. And look at my boat. God, look at my boat, God. Well, not for Ruby and not for Laura. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it.
0: Yeah. So I love how he said that. You just have to know a few things and be gripped by them. And be willing to lay down your life for them thing is Jesus Christ and his crucifixion, his burial, and then he rose again. That's the thing that we need to to be gripped by. And when we're gripped by that, and we pray that God, by his spirit, will enable us to be self-controlled, to turn our back and to repent of our sins. We pray that God will enable us to be selfless and to serve other people and to steward our gifts. I'm telling you guys, if we do that, we're not going to get to the end of our life with any regret. And we're gonna experience what I think our hearts are looking for and the satisfaction and joy between now and when we get there. If we would do that. So if you do that, I can promise you at the end, you won't waste your life. What I cannot promise you is how all the details in the middle are gonna work out. I don't know if you get married. I don't know what kind of job you get. I don't know what your friend group is gonna look like. I don't know what your body's gonna look like. I don't know what your bank account's going to look like. I don't know what your health is going to ultimately be. I can't promise you any of those details. But I can't promise you this, that if we do that, if we're gripped by that one thing, as we're seeking God because we know the end of all things is near, whatever happens in the midst of all of that, we will not waste our life. Amen? So I'm going to pray for us and just know that as we go into a time of singing and prayer now, that there'll be some people that if you want to just talk to somebody or you just need to pray with somebody, there'll be folks on with these uh, wristbands that will be pretty noticeable right up here that you can come up and be their joy to serve you in that way. But before we stand and sing, let me pray for us. And so God, we just thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he loves us. We thank you, Lord, that you love us. And we do pray, God, that you will help us to be alert and sober-minded. You will help us, Lord, and enable us to turn our back on the temptations and the desires that want to pull us off sides. God, that we will not buy the lie that selfishness is going to make our life better, but we will seek to love other people, not just when it's convenient, but Lord, at all times. And I pray that you will help us and enable us to steward our gifts, not to our glory, but as Peter said, to your glory. So that's our prayer, and we ask it in Christ's name.